Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 385, The Battle for London. Last time we heard that things had finally come to blows. Against all the odds, Charles's clever and articulate appeals to rally to the cause of king, church and social order had begun to work. His powerful magnates had brought together an army. On the 23rd of October 1642, Charles and the Earl of Essex had come to blows in the first major encounter of the English Civil War at Edge Hill, normally accounted a score draw, and therefore worth three points in the Civil War pools. But Charles had held the battlefield at the end of the day. The Carolean cock was at the top of the dung heap of war. Most importantly, the road to London lay open. We are going to see in this episode what Charles makes of this golden opportunity. Before we proceed, though, I have something to say. Now I realise that many of you had had your fill of names and feel a little overwhelmed by them, and I am sorry for that. A bit. Almost inevitably, I am now going to infuriate you yet further because there's going to be lots and lots of geography and place names and for those of you not born and bred in the place where Blake had hoped to build Jerusalem among the dark satanic mills, this could be a challenge. So, I will spend some time trying to locate you in hopefully a more helpful way than saying Kinton, you know, between Warwick and Banbury just off the Foss Way. Not sure how I'm going to do that, but you can mark me at the end of each episode. 
However, in the interests of being a good and helpful citizen of the podosphere, I have also placed a couple of mats on the internet at thehistoryofengland.co.uk. There's a smorgasbord of maps, actually, through the ages. If you go to thehistoryofengland.co.uk forward slash blog, forward slash type, forward slash maps, like you're ever going to remember that, I'll put a link in the podcast post. Also, there is a stonking interactive map and timeline at a site called historymaps.com. I mean, wildly good. You can go in and out and even shake it all about, I suspect. I'll put the link on the maps page for the Civil War maps. Enough. Onward. So, as Essex left the battlefield near Kinton between Warwick and Banbury, just off the Fossway, here's the topological overview. We are in the English Midlands, and about 100 miles to the southeast lay the beating heart of parliamentary power, London. By retreating north to Warwick, Essex wasn't that much further away, but he was behind. If Charles set off like a greyhound, or possibly a hare, he'd be there first, probably and some, since Essex's army was feeling a bit battered. Essex himself seems to have been more than a bit shell-shocked and in need of a bit of TLC. And Charles's plan, with his council of war since leaving Shrewsbury, had been to head towards London, so there's not much doubt where he'd be going at some point. The first thing to actually arrive in London, though, was news. As is common with these things, the news was not entirely accurate, and in this case, so the story was that Essex had been given a right royal kicking. And there was concern, I think it's fair to say, or possibly panic might be closer to the vibe. As we have seen, London had become highly politicised. No longer were the middling sort prepared to leave politics to their social betters. The flood of print and propaganda from the junto had seen to that, and on balance the town was heavily parliamentarian. But, like everywhere, there were also passionate adherents of the king's cause as well. There's one theory, actually, which has it that a common profile was an alliance between the super-noble magnate types and the very poorest members of society in support of the king, and that it was the middling sort that it had become most radicalised. So as fear and panic spread in London, a Stepney widow, Sarah Ling, was reported for saying, if some of her neighbours would join with her, she would cut the throats of a thousand roundheads. Which is probably an exaggeration, but you never can be too sure... And on the other end of the scale, many of the aldermen were suspect too. The London mayor, he had been carted off to the tower. And now the search was out for reds under the beds, quite literally, actually, since the Venetian ambassador reported that royalists were suddenly more numerous, suddenly more vocal after the news of the battle had arrived, and many even went around openly wearing rose-coloured hatbands in support of the king. So... 50 of London's most eminent citizens were targeted by Parliament. Rich men who are so cold in their affections to the cause, as a news sheet had it. So they found themselves hauled from their supper tables and beds and put into jail. And where there's smoke and all that, the grocer, Alice Bennion, she was caught with a trunk full of gold for the king. And we're not talking speedos. Nor was it simply the king that London had to worry about. 
The regional commanders and associations were emerging, as we've said, through the country, and Charles's man in the north, as you know, was William Cavendish, the Duke of Newcastle, enormously wealthy, prepared to put his wealth at the king's disposal. By the end of the war, he would claim to have spent one million quid fighting for his king. Even if that was an exaggeration of, let's say, 100%, it would have been an unthinkable amount of money for the time. And you have to say it seems a little unfair for someone to be quite that rich for no good reason. It's not as though he invented an operating system or anything. Discuss. Anyway, be that as is may, his enormous wealth gave the royalists a massive advantage in the north, even though he was a bit of a dilettante, so much so that Henrietta Maria would mock him for not getting out of bed until 11 o'clock in the middle of a war zone. Despite the resistance up there of the Fairfaxes, as we have heard, Newcastle and his famous white coats had secured the city of Newcastle for the king. Now, you all know, I think now, that Newcastle, although a very long way from London, was very important to it because London's coal came from Newcastle. Now, it wouldn't. It wasn't just the lack of a warm open fire that gave Parliament cold feet. On the 2nd of November, the House of Lords proposed to make an offer of peace to the King, along with an immediate cessation of fighting. And the Commons were so spooked that they agreed. So, an embassy of peace was sent to the King. When they arrived, all they received was a flea given to them in the ear. Charles snubbed the delegation and turned away one of them particularly because he'd been declared a traitor by him. Charles was feeling mighty. He was back in control at the head of the army of righteousness. So, London was in a bit of a panic. But rather than running around in small circles, the people of London resolved to do something about this. As previously discussed, most of the towns and cities of England were poorly prepared for war. Throughout Europe, since the French invasion of the Italian peninsula in the late 15th century, accompanied by gunpowder weapons and artillery, the old, high and thin castle walls of the medieval world were being abandoned for the star fortress with thick, thick walls, designed to absorb the impact of large iron or stone balls, hitting them with some aggression. It won't be long before the famous French architect Vauban will take the art to its highest form for Louis XIV, if art be the right word. Not to put too fine a point on it, London was as defensible as the first little piggy's house of straw, and the wolf was on its way to blow it down. London's defence was being bossed by the Earl of Warwick, and indeed, I'm told, he brought up some warships up the Thames to sit outside the Houses of Parliament. Sounds a bit odd. They must have been titchy to get them past London Bridge, but what do I know? But walls, they were the thing, and there was so little time. Even now, Charles and his army could be approaching to visit vengeance on his rebellious capital. The answer was an absolutely huge, humongous public effort. The application, essentially, of mass elbow grease. The plans were ambitious. The old walls round the square mile, the city of London, were based on the lines of the old Roman and medieval walls. But London was now effectively far more than that. It was now Southwark over the bridge. It was Westminster at the end of the Strand on the west side of the city. So the new wall would need to be enormous, much, much larger than the old medieval walls, from Vauxhall in the west to Wapping in the east. In short order, the people of London must build a ditch and earthworks all around that vast area. 
Warwick's younger brother, the Earl of Holland, told the Alderman of London that your city is the strength of the kingdom indeed. It is not only the life, but the soul of it. If they can destroy you here, the rest of the kingdom all must submit and yield. Just to make sure everyone was quite aware that this was really important, the stakes were high, Viscount Sayand Seal turned the amp up another notch to 11 with an apocalyptic vision of what would happen if the king's army should get inside the city. Your lives would satisfy their malice, your wives, your daughters, their lust. OK, OK, we get it, fine. So London mobilised. The institutions of London, the trained bands and the livery companies, organised shifts for as many as 20,000 people for the next two months to labour night and day on the new ramparts and fortified bulwarks at points along it, all known together, rather prosaically, as London Lines of Communication. There is a map on the website, the history of... I needn't tell you the last. Down to the nearest sections of walls went whole families to dig and to hack, to lug rocks and earth in baskets, to feed the growing earthworks, to ferry food and drink from the city to the working parties. The trade guilds often organised the whole of their guild to shut down their tools of trade for the day and go en masse to a particular part of the wall. Often on the Sabbath, ironically enough, despite the strength of Sabbatarianism on behalf of the Puritans, but look, it kept them away from the evils of bowling, I suppose. The Corporation of London and the parishes of Southwark and Westminster all paid out for material, but every householder inside the walls was taxed tuppence towards the cost. The Venetian ambassador watched it all happening and wrote home, At the approaches to London, they are putting up trenches and small forts of earthwork, at which a great number of people are at work, including the women and children. Within two months, a rudimentary defence had been built, 11 miles long, completely ignoring the old medieval walls. The following March, an ordinance was issued by Parliament to improve the earthworks with stone, star-shaped strong points at 23 places around the walls, and once again, the majority of the work was done by volunteers and the citizens of London. They marched out in their thousands, 3,000 porters, for example, all pushing their wheelbarrows out to the walls. One observer wrote of a thousand oyster women, all alone with drums and flying colours, their goddess Bellona leading them in a martial way. Samuel Butler, as you may know, was a satirical poet who lived from 1613 to 1680 and started his most famous work after the Restoration in 1662. Although he doesn't seem to be particularly keen on Charles II, by the way, he did rather wittily and cynically remark, no man can oblige a prince more than that he kills his father. Anyway, Butler was probably extracting the Michael from on high when he wrote about this great people's community effort and wrote the following verse, but nonetheless, it adds a little colour. Marched, rankened, file with drum and ensign, entrenched the city for defensine, Raised rampires with their own soft hands to put the enemy to stands, from ladies down to oyster wenches, laboured like pioneers in the trenches, fell to their pickaxes and tools, helped the men to dig like moles. This is the second time, incidentally, we've heard reference to oyster women, and generally they don't get a good press, not usually held up as a shining example of virtue. I asked about this one day, curiously enough. 
And Elizabeth of this parish did suggest that since oyster women lifted their skirts to avoid getting them wet in the buckets of water containing said oysters, they had a bad reputation because this is the sort of lifting that ladies of the night who hung around places called Grape Lane and worse did. I cannot attest to the idea's veracity, but it does sound quite compelling. Meanwhile, this was the artillery company's big moment, just what they had trained for all this time. They signed people up for the trained bands, which were organised now into regiments of 1,200 people, each with their own colour and each with an order of status according to the status of their colonel. Here is the list of the colours, and believe me, I am tempted, very tempted, to go into each of their insignia, but I promise I'll spare you. They were, in order of rank, the red, the white, the yellow, the blue, the green, the orange, and each represented a ward or a group of wards in the city. I said I'd spay the insignia, but I did note the yellow regiment of the Farringdon Within, Castle Baynard and Aldersgate wards. They had what is described as black mullets with a yellow background, and I was interested by that because I'd only come across mullets in the context of fish, but worse, in the hairstyle of the 1980s as styled by Ian Botham, a style which, to my abhorred horror, is making a comeback. I mean, once was unfortunate, but to repeat the error is surely not just careless, but unforgivable and living proof that as a species, our time has surely come. So, I am ashamed to say I allowed myself to be distracted from the important business of describing this crisis of English affairs, and I looked up the mullet. It comes from the French mollet, so it is yet another indignity visited on us by the French, I might say. And the mollet is the star bit of a cavalier's spur. So, Botham's haircut comes not from that, I figure, but apparently it's another imperial indignity visited on us by the US this time. Hip-hop group the Beastie Boys seem to have started the mullet haircut. This is not the moment to cry Harry, OK? Anyway, where were we? Oh yes, trained bands. So, as danger loomed, there they were, the good citizens of London mustering and training with musket and pike outside the city walls, whence the danger was expected to come. When the balloon went up, the trained bands were expected to assemble on a wide front centred on a place called Turnham Green, a bit of common land about seven miles from the city, now an unremarkable suburb with apologies for local turners or whatever they style themselves. Although there was a broadside ballad from the time and the place which ran. One night by Turnham Green I robbed a revenue collector and what I took from him I gave to a widow to protect her. So there you go, just a little local colour and snaps for the fine folk of Turnham Green. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Anyway, back to Charles. On the day after the Battle of Edge Hill, there had been some repairs to put in place and Charles convened a council of war while they were done and engaged in a full and frank exchange of views over what to do next, presumably with beer, but not necessarily with sandwiches, since those won't be invented until 1762. Rupert and the swordsman were all for seizing the initiative. 
Rupert asked that he be given an advance force of 3,000 cavalry and musketeers and he would march on Westminster, well, trot on Westminster and with all his people finish this right here, right now, before Essex could recover his breath. Others were much more concerned, though, not with victory, that seemed a gimme to them now, but with the manner of victory because they were afraid of how peace and harmony would return afterwards, should His Majesty return by conquest. And instead they appealed to Charles to negotiate, now from a position of strength. The Earl of Bristol seems to have clinched it by warning that Rupert, being a young man and naturally passionate, might be urged in the heat of blood to fire the town. This was a pretty accurate assessment of Prince Rupert's character, since Rupert will more than once indeed fire a town in the heat of blood, and indeed in a welter of blood. But on this occasion, the carpe diem approach would seem to have been much the better idea. Ah well, Charles thought about it, decided once more that he wanted the best of both worlds, and so often this marks Charles's military and indeed political failings, he tended to want it always. He would not negotiate he would indeed march on London. But he'd do a few important jobbies on the way, capture the fair town of Banbury and occupy Oxford. His army and court needed a base, he explained. Then he'd reduce London to obedience by force of arms, as was good and proper for a king. So, no greyhound from the slips then. And that is how it went. Southwards to Banbury they marched, And while they were there, for the four days it took for it to surrender, they also captured Broughton Castle, which held out for a while but caved in when the heavy artillery arrived. Say and Seal, its owner, was not a home, having raised a regiment of 1,200 men, all nicely decked out in blue coats with the orange sash of Parliament, and was at London. I expect Charles was rather happy to hear about Broughton Castle being captured. Say and Seal had been a tricky thorn in his side and a devious opponent, so tricky that Charles had nicknamed him Old Subtlety. It is at Broughton that much of the scheming and plotting had been carried out by the junto that brought Charles to this point. In a strangely blank room on the roof that still exists, called The Room That Hath No Ears... I suspect when he heard about Broughton's fall at a council meeting, Charles asked to be excused, went into the back, and did that football, I've just scored a goal in the final minute thing, shirt overhead, fist pumping air, screaming noiselessly at an imaginary crowd. Then, set himself straight, returned decorously to the council room. Even kings and ruthless tyrants are allowed a corner flag celebration from time to time. Anyway, then it was to Oxford... That caused a local ruckus, because just a month before, John Byron and the King's Man had been there on his way to Shrewsbury, and all the university dons, royalists to a man, had done the Stratton celebration thing. And then, Say and Seal had ridden into town, and all the townspeople, parliamentarian to a man, woman and child, had done the same thing. On the 29th of October now, the boot returned to the royalist foot, and the king returned, where it would remain for many moons without number. Five days were spent messing and discussing at Oxford, while, as a personal note, John Byron took a little excursion to Henley-on-Thames, as many do on a summer's weekend these days. What they don't normally do, though, 
is go there specifically to visit the house of an opponent, in this case the lawyer Bulstrode Whitelock, who'd led in Strafford's trial, and trash the place. Bulstrode was very upset, as his diary explains at some length. Onward then south to the fair town of Reading, which they then occupied without resistance and where another peace delegation from Parliament caught up with them. It is here that Edward Hyde would later write that Charles missed his golden best opportunity for victory. This is where he turned down the best proposals from Parliament for peace. For Hyde, this was Charles's best chance to negotiate from a position of strength, to agree a peace, return to London, not at the head of an army of conquest, but nonetheless in total control. Charles, though, was confident. He had victory in his grasp. Off down the Thames they went, heading east to London, and by the 11th of November, Rupert was in front of Windsor Castle, trying to secure Charles's home. But now we need to go back to Essex and see what he's been doing, who, after a couple of days of TLC, he set off. And thee did not dilly, nor did he dally, nor lose his way and forget where to roam. East to Northampton, where he arrived on the 31st of October, along Watling Street, south to St Albans. And then on the evening of the 7th of November, London went wild as Essex and his army arrived back. People flocked to greet them with massive relief. Essex was given a hero's welcome. Frequently short of military dash, Essex was long on the affection of his troops and crowd, especially now when he had for once done the greyhound thing. Hey for old Robin, came the cry as he passed by. His army, it has to be said, was seriously depleted, though. Casualties and injuries at Edgehill were partly to blame. But desertion along the way was the big bugbear of armies throughout the civil wars. They left in droves. Historian Ian Gentle used the memorable phrase, The armies of both sides were like mushrooms, shooting up almost overnight, then disappearing even more quickly. So from the 14,000 men he'd had on the eve of Edgehill, maybe Essex now had 7,000. By the end of the year, he would have just 5,000. For the moment, though, there was work to be done, for there was news of the king. For a day, Rupert had bombarded Windsor Castle, but to no effect, until, gathering supplies, Charles was ready to resume. So now, on the 11th of November 1642, they approached the west of London, ahead of them lay the fair village of Brentford. And close, just west of London on Hounslow Heath, was where Essex now sent his advance guard to hold up the Royalist advance with detachments under stalwart Denzel Hollis, who had fought bravely at Edgehill, of course, and John Hamden and his greencoats. Honest John Lilburn was there also. He'd asked for a command of a troop of horse, but Warwick had begged him to stay in his regiment until this business was played out. Lilburn had agreed and promised to fight as resolutely tomorrow as your lordship will. Brothers in arms. The call then went out for all the trained bands to assemble at Chelsea Fields to the west of London, near the gateway to the west, as it is no longer called, the village of Turnham Green. That same day, in dense fog, Prince Rupert happened on Brentford. Sent ahead by the king, they attacked Hollis's regiment, which was forced back, while Lilburn went into speech mode, stirring up his regiment to be ready to spill blood for their country. Sadly, cannon and musket fire trumped fiery words, 
and Lilburn's regiment was overwhelmed, Lilburn captured and hauled off to Oxford. John Gwynne was a royalist from Wales who was there, and he proudly recalled not only his military prowess, of course, but implied that the parliamentary soldiers could hardly have been up to it anyway since they were NQOCD when Gwynne's men went to advance, to push a pike and the butt-end of muskets, which proved fatal to Hollis, his butchers and dyers that day. Since they had the field, and the main body of Charles's army was yet to come up, Rupert and his men gathered some of the fruits of victory and ransacked Brentford. But the sound of musket fire had reached London, and news of a defeat followed right behind it. The alarm came to London with the same dire yell as if the army were entered into their gates, wrote Hyde later, and if further motivation had been needed for action amongst Londoners, well, no more was required anymore, and there was panic at the imminent arrival of the king and his army. By the morning of the 13th, Chiswick Common, Turnham Green were swarming with people, Back in the city, those left behind shut up all the shops, strung chains across narrow streets to foil any horses or cavalry, and they built barricades. John Milton was in the city, as it happens, and very scared that his little house would be ransacked. So he went to all the trouble of writing a little sonnet, pleading for any badens to pass him by. Who says poetry doesn't have any practical application? At Turnham Green, it was a carnival, with the common land between Chiswick and Acton stuffed with Essex's experienced soldiers, the militia of the London-trained bands, militiamen from surrounding counties, so Hertfordshire, Essex and Surrey, and a mass of green, untrained apprentices who had signed up in the previous few days. 20,000 or so of various flavours of readiness and resolution. Essex and the Major General, the trained band, the experienced and hard-bitten Philip Skippen, deployed the men along the multiple hedgerows and enclosures. You wouldn't know it now, but the landscape was then a kind of bocage. Small fields, multiple hedgerows, small woods. Ideal infantry country, not great for cavalry. In front of their eyes, the royal veterans of Charles's army appeared and started to deploy in front of them, maybe 12,000 of them, with artillery all rattling and groaning into place. As the Londoners watched, their commander, Essex, rode their lines, and Skippen called to his men, Come, my boys, my brave boys, let us pray heartily and fight heartily. I will run the same fortunes and hazards with you. Remember, the cause is for God, and for the defence of yourselves, your wives and children. Come, my honest brave boys, pray heartily, fight heartily, and God will bless us. How confident was Skippen of his men as he said this, I wonder. It seems that Hyde, meanwhile, had heard that if the king charged, he had so great a party in each regiment that they would have made no resistance. The game was on. The royalist lines deployed and shifted. The odd volley of cannon fire roared out. The parliamentary lines waited. It was clear if that anyone was to start this, it would have to be Charles. Eventually, it came to lunch, and over a hundred wagons arrived from the city laden with food and drink. Bulstrode Whitelock recalled, 
The city goodwives and others, mindful of their husbands and friends, sent many cartloads of provisions and wines and good things to Turnham Green, with which soldiers were refreshed and made merry. A crowd of spectators had gathered behind the apprentice boys, two or three hundred of them. Every time any part of the Royalist army advanced or deployed, they panicked and would gallop away towards London as fast as they could ride to the discouragement of the Parliament's army, and divers of men would steal away from their colours toward their homes and the city. Almost a carnival atmosphere then. While the Royalist soldiers were experienced and ready for the fight, but also far from home, short on provisions and outnumbered. At one point, a Royalist messenger left the lines and cantered towards Parliament. He bore a message. He was ushered to see Essex, but as Essex opened the letter from his king, the Royalist artillery chose that very moment to open fire, and as one person wrote, the hope and harmony of peace was lost in the loud voice of a cannon. The two sides looked at each other, and then, as the day wore on, there was movement. Charles and his council had decided the odds were too great, and they'd bottled it. They faced an army of variable experience, but well-fed, rested close to home, behind difficult, broken countryside, twice their size, and, classically, defending their homes and family. The opportunity for Charles that had seemed so bright was gone. The people of London had won. Regiment by regiment, covered by detachments of musketeers and dragoons, Charles's army started to withdraw. It was now a thoroughly dangerous time for them. Around Essex, the debate was whether now was the opportunity to attack. But Essex, ever cautious, ever unsure of the fighting quality of his troops, chose to let them go. Within a few days, Charles and his army were back in Oxford, which would now be the royal base. Charles had been faced down by a popular army. London had stood shoulder to shoulder for the cause of Parliament. And as Charles turned aside from the challenge and went back to Oxford, the chance for a quick start to this war had gone with him. It would now be a mass of regional struggles that would cover vast areas of England with violence, dislocation, disease, dearth and death. Fun fun should be a hoot. Next time, we're going to catch up on events in Scotland and Ireland. This is, after all, the Wars of Three Kingdoms. We'll sweep up the other conflicts around England and Wales in 1642 so that we're ready for war in 1643. Until then, thank you all very much for listening. Thank you for all your comments and reviews and for taking part in the Facebook group, the website and all of that. Until then, good luck everyone and have a great week. Mm -hmm.